Hi everyone and welcome to episode 5 of the Judo Talk podcast. Judo Talk, Talk, Judo Talk. Hey guys, welcome to the latest episode of Judo Talk. And for this episode, this episode I was really excited to to record. So I'm, I'm today I'm talking to Andy Burns, and Andy Burns is a judoka. He he was British champion. He medalled at the Commonwealth Games, under twenty three European medalist. Um, so he's got good experience. He's worked within judo uh, with the Welsh Judo Association. He was their S and C coach. Um, and now Andy works for the English Institute of Sport and UK Sport as their senior performance pathway scientist. And in this episode, we're talking about long-term athlete development. We're talking about talent ID and talent development. And this subject is something I'm really passionate about. I was, I studied this area uh, for my master's degree and I've done quite a lot of background in this area. Um, but talking to Andy, I still learn so much and I think you guys will too whether you're a parent or a coach athlete it's really interesting valuable insight um, for anybody that's not looked into this field before and there's definitely a few moments where you I think you will think wow I did I really didn't know that I didn't understand that I never thought about that before and Andy is clearly extremely knowledgeable about this field and knows it inside and out but was really good at explaining and relating the concepts in a way that is easy to understand and resisted the temptation to go too heavy on the science so he didn't lose me, thankfully. And I think whatever your participation level of judo, you will gain something from this. So I think let's, let's jump into it and I'll speak to you guys on the other side. Hey guys, and welcome to the latest episode of Judo Talk. And today I've got a very special guest. Uh, today I'm talking to Andy Burns. So hello, Andy. Hi, guys. <laughs> so obviously Andy, Andy's been involved with judo all his life, but now more importantly, Andy's working with DIS. Uh, well, actually, Andy, let you, you tell us about you. Yeah, no problem. I actually haven't been involved in judo all my life. I didn't start till I was 16. So I was quite a late comer to, to the judo world. Um, but I'll start at what I do now, and then we can kind of um, discuss other bits. But I've got a quite unique and varied role. Um, I work across both the EIS and UK Sport. And um, for a day and a half of my week, I'm head of performance support for para archery and Olympic archery, heading into the Olympic Games and Paralympic Games. So I basically work with the coaching team, the senior leadership, um, and I directly line manage the sports science, sports medicine staff in order to do service provision for athletes to make sure that they're prepared resilient physically and mentally going into the games so that's the sort of performance side of my role uh, the other bit which is as exciting um is um in the performance pathways team which most people don't really know what we do uh, so i'll try and explain it to you i'll try and articulate it anything to do with if we're leading into tokyo now in terms of 2021 anything to do with paris 2024 and la 2028 from an olympic point of view is our remit so we work with sports and we we could on any given day i could either be evaluating a sports funding submission right down to working with an individual coach poolside um, in terms of their helping develop their practice and work with athletes and everything in between so essentially what we do is anything around athlete development mm. which is really cool because it's unique and varied um, and within that team i have a sort of distinct uh, remit so i'm pathway coaching and curriculum lead so I look after any kind of coach development um, from a home nation and from a sort of academy level point of view and um, work around um, sports curriculum. So what are the experiences that athletes are having in order to prepare them for the next game so they're ready for world-class program? Yeah, yeah. And uh, well, to be honest, I've been looking forward to this chat for quite some time, to be honest. Um, it's definitely an area where I find really intriguing. There's lots of, it's quite a really in-depth subject isn't it there's so much that goes into it and there's also so many so many aspects that aren't actually within a coach's control as well and that's why I like it, it you know um and I think it would be great for us to start if you could give us a little bit of information of uh, around sort of what long-term athlete development is talent id talent you know just just give us a base level entry level of that 
Uh, now you, I feel like you put me under pressure now. You're like looking forward to the chat and <laughs> give me a baseline of all of these different bits of knowledge um, in a sentence. Go. Yeah, go on. One, one little bit. No, take, take your time. We've, we've not got to go anywhere, have we? So we'll be all right. No, it's fine. <laughs> let, me, um, let me talk about um, talent, the talent ID and development first. So simply put, talent ID and development is either the process of finding and literally finding athletes that you think will be potential future Olympians, Paralympians of the future. Um, so the processes of selection, what tests you might do, how you might go about it, at what age you would do it, and how do you know? To what degree of certainty do you know that the athletes you're selecting at whatever age that is will go on and be successful? And that's fraught with loads of risk and uncertainty mm-hmm. and issues with it. And why um, would... why? Why do people want that? Why do you want to be able to, uh, from a EIS or UK sport, why do you want to find that one person as quickly as possible? Well, I'll give you an example from professional sports if it's useful. Yep. Um, so in football, they call it the race to the bottom, which is essentially if a, if a, if a sport or a team invested in an athlete at an earlier age, um, it costs them less. So the amount of resource they have to put into them at a later stage is less. Um, so what they do is they try and find those that are already talented and bring them in so that they can just keep them in-house. And then um, if they don't end up going into the senior team with them, then they can sell them on. So from a professional sport point of view, it's good business to do talent ID um, and get it right to some extent. Uh, but from Olympic and Paralympic sport, it's about a finite resource. So each sport gets a limited amount of funding um, to employ and deploy coaches and practitioners and um, support clubs. So what they want to do is work out which athletes might be able to be successful in the future so they can put those resources into them. And those resources might be training camps, competitions, um, sports science, sports medicine support and coaching um, and potentially APAs, et cetera, in order to ensure that those athletes progress through that journey and that the investment they make in those athletes um, brings to fruition Olympic medals, which traditionally, if you go and win two or three Olympic medals at Olympic Games, you get more money. So therefore, by having more money, you can have more staff, which means you can invest in more athletes. So it's a, it's a money race, really, why we do Talent ID. And how does that differ to talent development and, and that side of it? So um, we always say it's um, Talent ID with a capital D is that we really want to focus on the development side of things. And I think that's the way, uh, particularly sort of UK sport and our systems moving, is that we really want to focus on the development experiences that are offered to athletes. So those are come from a club setup. Um, how do we keep them involved in the sport for longer with better coaching, better experiences, so that not only do we get those potential future athletes that come on and win medals at Olympic or Paralympic level, but people stay in the sport and are engaged for a longer period of time um, and give back to that sport by going into coaching, volunteering and officiating, etc. cetera. Um, so the whole thing is we're playing the long game now. We're not asking sports to... I say we, UK sport, are not asking sports to just invest in this next Olympic cycle, go and win as many medals as you can and only focus on the very top. UK sport have a really clear mandate that um, to sports invest over the four to eight to 12 years. So what is your long-term plan in terms of building a sustainable um, pathway where there's more athletes engaged with better quality experiences? That's a big shift. Yeah, yeah, massive. And so... If we were looking at talent ID, trying to spot um, an athlete early, talent development is the, you know, the environment that possibly that they're going to be developed in. How does that interact with long-term athlete development? Uh, so when you say long-term athlete development, are you talking about the, the Bali's model of like train to train, train to win, that sort of stuff? Yeah, I mean, there's quite a few different models now, aren't there? But so I, I suppose what I'm trying to say is it's, there's going to be coaches listen to this and there's going to be athletes listen to this or parents and they're going to think, right, this is talent ID. And from a judo perspective, we know that it starts to happen when they sort of enter pre-cadets, cadets, that sort of happening. Then they start to see the training environment, but they might be thinking, well, what, what is the difference? How, because we have grassroots judo that leads all the way through to elite. Uh, basically let's let's break up a few of those segments so people might be able to understand the different involvement levels yeah um let let me try and i'll I'll try and articulate this this might fail miserably but i'll I'll have a go Um, (laughs) you'll do better than me so don't worry there's other factors involved in talent id particularly around sort of 
the youth athlete leading up to kind of the age of 18. There's other factors such as um, the coaching experiences that they get. So it's luck really, which club you end up, you might end up with someone like Vince, or you might end up with someone who doesn't really know what they're doing. Um, but there's other stuff that influence it in terms of your parents. What, what's the kind of support? Um, you spend more time with your parents than you do with your club coach. So what kind of support network do you have around that? There's other things like siblings. If you have a bigger brother or bigger sister, quite often an athlete would come through who's had to chase and run around chasing after the big brother. There's some research and literature around that. Where you're born, where you grow up is a, is a big factor. Um, how mature you are, how quick you mature in terms of you might just have someone who, and we've seen it in judo before, there'd be someone who at 15 years old looks like a fully grown man with a hairy chest mm. and just beating everybody up and then three years later they're nowhere on the scene because you know the young ones who have come through and matured a little bit later have developed the skills and experiences that actually they're able to do the stuff that the physically dominant one can't do that plays out in rugby and other sports just as much as it would in judo Uh, but we've both experienced that i'm sure of it and then there's other things like um relative age which relative age is a really simple concept that basically what, what month of the year you're born might dictate whether or not you're getting selected so if you're born in January, which means you've got a whole year of development before you move on to the next sort of stage. So if you're born in December, um, from a year point of view, you actually could be up to sort of 15, 16 months behind in your physical development, um, cognitive development, technical development, than someone else is in the same age category as you. Yeah. Judo doesn't play out so much because it's a weight category thing, but in other sports, like, um, athletics is an example. 83% of the athletes who are selected onto the British team at under 16 are in the first half of the year. And that really is a phenomenal stat, isn't it? If you think about it. And that's um, that's dependent on sports as well. Say like stuff like football that are generally played in a school year, that alters it as well, doesn't it? Actually, I yeah. wanted to go back to your point about judo because I find that really interesting as well because it's really difficult because obviously it is weight class, but once you get to um, cadet, there's like a three year age gap. And I, you know, I spoke to people before about it and you could be, especially when you start getting into the senior weight categories, if you're uh, 15 years old and you're 60 kilos fighting somebody that's 60 kilos, that's 17 years old, that the bodies are completely different, but the skill sets are completely different as well because there's a good chance that 15-year-old isn't going to be 60 kilos for long. Yeah, exactly. And it's the rate of maturation you're going through, isn't it? What part of that growth spurt are you in? Mm. Um, I'll give you an example. I was working with an athlete when I was coaching in Wales who was, in I think in nine months, went from 73 kilograms to 91. Wow. <laughs> it, was, it was unbelievable. But if you asked him to clap, he couldn't get his hands to touch each other. Mm so uncoordinated so actually we had to pull him from some of the sort of heavy fatiguing randori sessions because he was just so uncoordinated it was a risk to himself and to others Mm. Um, this athlete's gone on and done really well but he was going through a massive growth spurt that actually meant there was no one in the club that could challenge him so he ended up just fighting me all the time which was fun for me (laughs) but at the same time um that you know that that journey for that athlete um they might lose their coordination they might be going for that growth spurt at a time when there's selections like mm-hmm. towards the back end of cadets or, you know, end of juniors, um, where that kind of might that might actually be the make or break of them as an athlete. Yeah, it's so tricky and it can be so cruel as well, you know, because it seems really sim- silly, but limb growth makes a massive difference in, in a sport like judo, which is, it's so fine. Like it can be quite brutish, but actually the feeling and the stuff like that is quite, it, it's quite detailed and, you know, it, kids going through those growth spurts you know i've seen it with kids step on the mat one week and they they can do their techniques and the next swing week they're kicking their people on and it's not because they want to it's just because yeah. they've grown isn't it yeah yeah and that coordination piece is, is really hard um, and for coaches it's difficult to manage as well because you've got a, a class of 20 in front of you for example and each person each individual in front of you is going through a different growth spurt or learning journey or a different level of skill so to be able to manage that um, I'm always an envy of coaches that can do that. Mm. Yeah, it's not it's not easy. I think we with athletes as well. I think especially young teenagers. I think it's just about reassuring them. You know, it's like because they look at you thinking, oh, "What's happened here? You know, why can I no longer do this um, where previously they could?" And you're like, "Well, don't worry about it. Like, it's gonna." <laughs> 
you're just at a point of your development, it will come back, you know, and I think just that little bit of reassurance saying, don't worry, you're fine. It's okay. And that, that definitely helps with the process, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. The, um, the bit around sort of long-term athletic development that you, you stated earlier, um, there's a whole, there's loads of models out there in terms of different levels of um, uh, depth in terms of types of physiological developments that happen to a young person between sort of the ages of 11 and 15. Um, when I was coaching in Wales, I would, wouldn't see an athlete till they were 15. So all of that stuff that had happened, all the different windows of sensitivity in terms of skill or physical development have already happened. So that lies with the coach. So the, the club coaches who are doing that um, are having to manage um, lots of different um, things that happen physiologically for an athlete. Um, so I feel for them in that. But the, the one bit that sort of sticks with me in terms of the sort of the long-term AD thing is what we landed on when we were in Wales, which was essentially keep them in the sport for as long as possible. Um, because you might have someone who has just got really good feel and movement patterns and can do judo from an early stage. You look at a young kid and you go, like, show them a technique and they can just do it. Or you might have one who can't do that, but has actually got a bit of a hard worker tendency. And some of that might not play out in terms of who might come through and be successful as a, as a judo player, as an athlete, until, you know, in the 20s, really. So like our, our job as coaches or um, talent developers should be, how do we keep them engaged and involved in the sport? And like, like we've said before, keep them and get them to fall in love with the sport. Mm. Now that means lots of different things uh, because an athlete might just really want to see success and young people aren't really thinking about what am I going to be like in 20 years? They want to see some here and now development and um, it might be some resilience or some confidence that they're building. It might be a skill that they're able to execute. It might be, might even be represented at a cadet European championships, but they're interested um, through sort of adolescent brain development. They're interested in the here and now it's as coaches, we've got to think about how do we keep them engaged, whether that's competitive success, whether that's um, intrinsic motivation or it's something that's um, for them rather than them trying to appease a, a parent that wants to live vicariously through them or whether it's a coach mm -hmm. that wants to get success for the club. Um, our job is really to keep them in the sport for as long as possible to help them fall in love with it and to give them the opportunity that if you if they wanted to progress into those kind of competitive ranks, that they've got the foundational movement patterns and skills and techniques that they're able to do that. Yeah, that's um, really important as well. Uh, I think I've definitely read a lot of papers around um, youth development and stuff. And actually number twos and number threes within weight classes as they're developing are actually the ones that will tend to move to higher levels and that's not true in every case there's no way that's true in every case um but there's definitely a link between so one of the papers um that i read was around children that go to like youth olympic festivals under 18 europeans and they go to those events at 16 17 years old and then they, they really struggle to move on to the junior level or the under 20s. And, and the thought process behind it is because they could be physically more dominant at that stage, at that cadet level. And at juniors, you will see everybody start to level out. The judo comes in and they almost identify themselves as a winner because they've done these events, they've gone to these things. And when they make that jump to the next level, actually they're no longer the winner because there's still a big age gap. There's people being around a lot longer, but also those number twos and threes that haven't give up, they're also catching up. And because they've identified as a winner, they actually then struggle to not be the winner anymore. And those twos and threes have almost, they've come to terms with it. And that's where, where it helps push on, doesn't it? Yeah, quite often those twos and threes identify themselves as hard workers mm. or that they're used to the process of losing and learning from it. Yeah. And as you know, as much as anybody, like at international level judo, you probably lose more than you win up to a certain point, don't you? So um, if you're always winning and then you start losing, that's really hard to take. And mm. it does hit your identity and your self-confidence. Um, so quite often those that have got used to losing and learning from that at an earlier stage are able to progress yeah I wish I could remember the paper that uh, I looked at actually and it was looking at I think it was they they'd done um they'd done a poll of all the athletes that went to Athens Olympics and I think 52 or 53 percent of every athlete never never w was in any national team under the age of 20 which yeah, is phenomenal that, that, isn't it 
yeah, and it plays out in lots of different sports, like across, like you say, across Olympic sports. Um, it's not to say that, I mean, I don't want to disparage people from aiming for success at a, a younger age, because I think that experience of like major multi-sport events and being competitive and the skills that you learn and try and develop yourself and prepare for an event, um, they're still really valuable, mm. but not to the detriment of your long-term development, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it is so, so hard, isn't it, find that balance. And I think it's just ensuring that the athletes that do, that are good enough, know that's still the start of their journey. You know, and that's, yeah. I think if you can manage their expectations of where they are, is really, really important. Um, and that done well, yeah, I think they're obviously set for a, a good starting point anyway, aren't they? Yeah, there's a really simple principle that um, the, the people in my team would sort of adhere to, which is this um, idea or concept of appropriate challenge. And it's really simple. And it's about understanding the athlete or the, or the player or the, the young person you're working with in terms of um, <laughs> the, the cheesy line is prepare the player for the path, not the path for the player. So if you're working with someone who's really talented and is winning all the time at a young age, uh, you might need to, you might need to fabricate some of those hurdles and blocks and challenges for them to make it harder for them. Okay. Yeah. So that they develop that identity of being the hard worker or learning from losing, et cetera, versus someone who might be sort of further behind in their development is you might need to move some of those barriers out of the way. Mm. But ra rather than thinking, you know, how do we make it easy for them to move through that pathways? How do we prepare that athlete physically, psychologically, technically, and tactically to be able to, navigate that themselves so it's about self um, independence and reliance and trying to develop that and foster that with the young people we work with and how how would you say that could be done in a sport like you because I can't, I can't imagine it's just put them up an age group just put them up you know because the judo is a brutal sport when you know at the top level so what would be what would be that sort of idea in a judo context I'll give you a really simple, this is a terrible example, but I'll give you a really simple example. You've got, an, you've got a young judo player who is dynamite standing, like can just throw everybody. Um, you put them into a competition that might not be the level that they would normally compete at. So you might drop them down from say national level to regional level and say you can only win on the ground. Yeah. You're not allowed to do anything else. So actually you're making it harder for them to, to develop or, and you can do things in terms of challenging within the training environment, making it more stimulating and more challenging for them by either not pre-fatiguing them, but creating constraints that makes their um, their development harder for them so that they learn some of those skills. But from a competitive point of view, it's quite easy, isn't it? You could go, like, you're only allowed to throw with this throw or you're only allowed to score on the ground or you're not allowed to throw until the last minute. So they learn sort of how to sort of stay in a fight, et cetera. There's loads of things you can do in terms of making it challenging for them. Yeah. I, I want to move us back to a little bit um, to the sort of talent ID section as well, if you don't mind. Um, because in judo, we use a talent ID system. You know, it's we use a system of trying to identify athletes, get them onto a program, whether it's home, home nations or um, Great Britain. With, with judo not being a like a linear sport it follows a, a real specific pattern there's so many what are the real difficulties with trying to produce a talent id that works for judo uh, first and foremost the hardest thing is to separate performance from potential mm. there's that is that is the number one challenge that anyone has in talent identification development is different because you can just take everybody uh, at face value and on an individual case by case and go what's the best thing for this person mm. to develop them but from an ID point of view, if you've only got 12 places that you can provide to a group of athletes, you've got 100 people applying for it at some point, because um, resource isn't infinite, isn't it? You only have a certain number of competition places and training programs, et cetera. If you've got to select, it's so hard and it gets harder the earlier you get. So that the, the younger you select, the more likelihood there is that your, um, your predictions are going to be wrong. Yeah. But you might say at 13 years old, I think this person is going to be Olympic champion. <laughs> and you put all your money into that one person and all your sort of resources and think this is going to be the next person that wins. Number one, what does that do to that person? That 13-year-old who's told the, the great next hope for an Olympic gold medal, that puts undue pressure on them. Secondly, we just don't know. They haven't gone through maturation. They haven't had the experience or the exposures to... Um, or shown that they're prepared for that commitment because as we know how competitive judo is internationally 
um, and how hard it is physically. Uh, you, there's a certain type of person that will grow and develop to be able to want to go on that journey. And at 13, most people don't know who that is. Um, so as you move up through the pathway, as you get to sort of 19, 20, 21, you're able to kind of sort out, well, actually, who's, who's on a performance trajectory? So where did they start? Where are they now? What kind of trajectory are they on moving forward? Um, and then if we try and separate out performance at, say, 18 years old as an arbitrary number, um, first and foremost, there's already been a massive degree of natural selection. The post-16 dropout rate for competitive sport in this country is horrendous across all the sports, not just judo. So if you can keep an athlete or a player in past 16, you've done half the work because most people will finish then. Mm. Um, so if you look at performance, though, you've got to take into consideration. Um, and this is where it gets challenging. Some of the sports that where we've done some of this profile and work with some sports, you take what the, currently, the current performance is, whether that's in the sporting instance or whether that's like the, the strength and conditioning or whatever it is that they can do. And you go, here's a marker of where they're at physically, technically, tactically, psychologically. What experiences have they had and what other factors do we need to consider? And that might be their training history, their club setup, could even be their socioeconomical background, their um, schooling, education, parents setup. Um, what factors have led them to get to this point because it might be there's two athletes. Let's just try and make it a bit more real. You've got two athletes at 18 years old, both got bronze at the national championships, and you, have to, you can only put one of them onto the program. One of them has been doing judo full-time since they were 12, and has got a professional strength conditioning coach, and then the parents are really supportive and travel the world with them for competitions. The other one who got bronze has been doing judo for 12 months with no support from a club that hasn't produced players previously, uh, but is still able to achieve the performance at that same level. Which one do you invest in? Mm. I'm not saying you have to answer that, but those are the questions that sports are faced with. Yeah. And it's so tricky, isn't it? Because there's so many things that go into that. And it, it's the things that you can't answer that actually will generally make that difference, won't it? Yeah. Yeah. hundred um, percent. The whole thing is around for me is keep them in the sport for as long as possible. And I, I can't reiterate that message anymore, really. Um, it gets challenging when you get to those selective environments where um, you might get to 18 and there might be an opportunity to either be on part of like a British squad or move to a centralized setup and those options aren't there. Keeping them involved in the sport at that point is pretty challenging as well. So do you think there's an argument then for, um, especially at younger age groups, having lots more centers or involvement levels so even if you go back to when there used to be areas i know there are still areas but they don't a lot of areas don't operate in any sort of capacity but that could be an entry in you know where where they can go they can travel and it might not even be in there it could just be bigger clubs because it's so easy to get into europe it's so easy to give you know anybody who does judo as their job to set up a club and stuff is there an argument then to say, well, actually there should be lots more higher level clubs or areas or whatever? In a utopian world, Vince, yeah. <laughs> you, you would have <laughs> That's where I live. <laughs> that, that feed into um, different centres, that feed into and provide a really high quality um, cohort of athletes that are engaged and have the requisite skills to be able to thrive in a world-class programme. That's your utopian society, isn't it? Where um, resources are limited. Um, but you can still do things around that in terms of making it competitive and keeping them involved for longer. That mm. um, there are ways around that. Yeah, and I suppose it is hard, you know. And with funding so limited in sports, you know, it, it is difficult for the top to say, "Here's some money to support those clubs lower down," but also trying to rally the clubs up to show them how that they could support themselves because there's going to be uh, I can think of quite a few clubs that are actually fairly big sized clubs now that would operate as areas you know and any sort of encouragement to build other clubs and hubs with a little bit of education seems like a, a sensible idea yeah definitely and um, the quality of coaching that they can get from that um, obviously increases and doesn't it um, I was just going to say in terms of one of the things that's useful in, in regards to sort of clubs and local regions is um, this idea of proximal role models, which is basically just essentially people that you know from your area um, that are on a pathway or a trajectory to being successful. 
So for the young athletes who come into a club and they see a player that's competing at a certain level, they can kind of, they can relate to it and go, I could get there because I can see them doing it. And that idea of role models plays out. And an example from the club that I went to. So much of you know this, I went to the same club as Nathan Burns. Yeah. um, And his his dad was my coach. And he was great at always talking about, um, this is Nathan, Nathan's gone off and done X, Y, and Z, or this is the players that came before Nathan in terms of, they're here now training with you, but they're traveling the world doing this and competing. And um, because you could see that happening and you could see those people and you could train with those people, it gave you um, the motivation and actually the, the sort of the open door to say, well, I could do that as well. Mm. I suppose actually that, that rings true with um, just off the top of clubs like Edinburgh and Cambly, where they managed to have top level athletes in their clubs. I've definitely seen it at Cambly where that inspires the next generation, knowing that Ashley's there, that they can see him training Karina before him, you know, there have been so many athletes, I guess, at both clubs that have managed to to generate that that buzz around it, and also the the fact that they can go, that could be me. Yeah, they're not an alien. But, They've got two arms, two legs. You know, I could do that. Yeah, and you might and judo's set up for that, isn't it? Because um, you know it's very rare, and you wouldn't be training next to um, Ronaldo if you're a football player at a local club, would you? But in judo, that's actually the, one of the unique things about it is you could be at a club and you could be seeing Ashley McKenzie training like, in the session after you and have a passing conversation with him and just say, well, I could do that as well. That could be me. Mm. That idea of proximal role models is pretty strong. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that, actually. Um, and also, with judo, because we talk, we've talked about, obviously, judo having weight categories, how difficult is that for somebody thinking about athletes going on their pathway and skill sets and you know say for example what what i mentioned earlier about uh, 260 kilogram fighters in in the cadet age group 115 117 this 60 kilo at 15 could be 80 kilos or 90 kilos or even bigger you know what's the difficulties then of being able to predict and identify well with I'm going to try and not get sciencey with you on this one, um, but there's measures that you can do. I mean, the, the sort of gold standard measure would be to measure people's hands in an X-ray, hmm. um, and by measuring that, you can work out what their uh, predicted adult stature will be. Now, that doesn't say um, so stature is height, so you can work out how tall that person's going to be, but lifestyle dictates what kind of size they're going to be and what weight they're going to be. Right. Hmm. So you might have someone who grows to be six foot one, but is still seventy three kilos. Or you might have someone who grows to be five foot ten, but it's 110 kilos. So you can't really predict those sort of things. But what you can do is get an indicator of how tall they're going to be, mm. which can give you a rough estimate of actually they're going to be this this size. Then we should do something for that. Yeah, I remember. Because um, so, you can also do, you can start tracking their growth spurts as well, and maturation can't use through peak height velocity and and stuff like that. And and that was one of the interesting things with working at a club. And there's loads of information out there that you could possibly apply, but actually in reality, when you're working with so many players, it becomes so difficult. And one of the things that I would do, and this is no way scientific, is I would look at their parents. I'd look at their parents, see how big they are, you know, and I would take a look at, are they from a fairly wealthy family? Um, I would ask them things about their meals. You know, how do you eat? What do you eat? And, and I'd just get an idea in a sense of what it was like for them. And then you could go, right, most probably they're going to be a middleweight, you know? So I would say 60, 60, 66, lightweight 73 to 90 middleweight and above that is a heavyweight for for men and then do the same thing for the women and then try and put the skill set within those categories and then go well roughly I can predict they're going to be falling this sort of idea and then start looking at those skills that they might need yeah I don't know many people that are doing that Oh, that's not the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I genuinely, I think that's a really unique way to look at things um, because as, as we're aware at the senior level, the skill sets required for those different um, categorizations that you just put them in, light, middle and heavyweight, um, they are different and they do require different things. Mm. Um, and to start that early on is interesting. Um, a counter to that might be are the, are the generalizable skills that sort of fit across everybody. Mm. And actually, if you someone who's going to be a heavyweight when they're older, is there a benefit to 
teaching them like a lightweight to begin with because then they take a certain skill set to that heavyweight category when they're older that the other heavyweights might not have mm. yeah and that's that's the hard thing isn't it with um especially with children i think there's no escape like when you said um it's really difficult to when you've got 20 kids on a class to change a set of class you know on that and i think the general skills that are taught transfer across all judo don't they but i think it's just when for me it was always about if i think they're going to be slightly heavier or going to be i'm not going to be so harsh if they're struggling with their coordination for a forward roll or a handstand or a cartwheel or because as much as those would be a, a nice skill to have are they really going to be beneficial you know, it's, it's very rarely that they're going to come into play. And it's just about offsetting where your expectation is. And I think that also helps manage their expectation as well. You've got me thinking, Vince. It's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because um, if our intention is to keep them involved in the sport for as long as possible, um, and we're being harsh on a heavyweight or a potential heavyweight because they can't do a cartwheel, is that why we might potentially lose them to rugby, where they don't have to do cartwheels and handstands, mm. as an example? Whereas actually, if you're trying to do a catch in rather than catch out, um, do we make allowances for those that are bigger? I'm sure that happens and it plays out naturally in clubs anyway, mm. but it's worth sort of indicating that that might be an important consideration. If you've got someone who, even if you're looking at the parents and both the parents are over six foot, this person might not be the heavyweight, so I might need to just make allowances for their coordination. Mm. Yeah, especially, and we could go on for age. I, I absolutely love talking about this. And if we're using that heavyweight as a key example, because I know as a country, we struggle to keep heavyweights um, engaged, but especially when it comes around maturation age, there is a big thing about trying to build their self-esteem and their confidence. And I think if you're then asking them to do skills that we know that aren't going to be that relevant and they're going to find difficult, they already feel self-conscious that they're the biggest, strongest, maybe quite clumsy because they're growing. And then you ask, you amplifies the situation, which then all of a sudden they're going to look at sports, not for me, judo is not for me, you know, and that same could be said with the lightweights, you know, there will be things that we're asking lightweights to do that just, really aren't relevant for, for them you know if yeah. they feel small they're conscious of being small you know and all of these things come actually fall into talent development doesn't it rather than talent id but id has a big part of it yeah it's, it's um two sides of the same coin isn't it if you understand what you're looking for and actually if you understand where the athlete is in terms of their growth and maturation then you can make really effective decisions in terms of what development's right for them. Mm. Otherwise, you, you're, I'm not going to say that you didn't take a scientific approach, but you're looking at the parents and going, oh, well, they look, they're big. So actually, you can make those assessments using your intuition and your experience um, and then make, and, or you can use a really scientific approach depending on the resources that you've got at your disposal. But at the same time, what decisions you make around what you, what's needed for that athlete affects what you do in terms of the development. Mm. Yeah, and I think the development side is so, so interesting because, as we say, although there's loads of scientific things that we can look at, but actually um, the things that we don't necessarily look at will be whether they stick around or not as well. Can they get to training? Can they afford to go to training? You know, especially in some of the poorer areas, how, how have you seen that interact with sports um, as they start to progress up a level? Um, interesting. I'll give you a tiny little anecdote. So there's a guy I work with at Modern Pentathlon who used to be a um, former England rugby player, but thought used to be academy manager for Leicester Tigers. And he said he'd wait at the gates um, in the academy and he'd see the athletes that turned up in the Bentleys and the Range Rovers. And he'd see the athletes that turned up getting off a bus who'd caught like three buses in order to get to the center. And that would be some of his town ID knowing that actually if that athlete's having to catch two buses to get to training and still getting there, then they're showing a level of commitment. So there was bits around that in terms of understanding the athlete's motivation as to why they're there, which, which is interesting in terms of that development piece. Mm. Yeah. And how, how does a sport like judo, how do we try and structure an athlete's learning in, in judo? how, because that's one thing I always found quite difficult when I was doing lots of the research around it. There was lots of talk and topics around other sports and you can go easily go, 
that doesn't relate to judo is so different but yeah. what what can we do in judo um so in terms of structure and athletes learning um and to talk to you a little bit about this idea of curriculum and everyone thinks of curriculum as like what you what you learn at school right mm-hmm. it's um it's the syllabus or it's the um the science maths and english that i'm going to do and it's a class but curriculum is um the totality of experiences so what is that athlete's experience when they're with you and if you if you're in a coaching situation with them um, you can break it down into different things so what did i intend to teach them so what was the syllabus or techniques we wanted to learn or approaches we wanted to take how was that delivered um, so intended and then delivered so what did we actually do um, and how did those athletes interact with that and then what's the experience so what are they progressing in I might say at the start of um, a block of training or at a session level that I want to develop Taitoshi as an example. I want to get these athletes from point A to point B in terms of not being able to do Taitoshi to be able to do it to a certain standard. And what I've done is I've provided these different coaching interventions and this, these drills or these setups that I've put together that gets them there. And at the end of it, no one can do Taitoshi. Then there's some reflection to be done there, isn't there? In terms of what am I, what am I trying to do? So the curriculum thinking in terms of your intention, your delivery and your experience as a cycle of inquiry. So if you go through that as a reflective process on what are we trying to get them to on a short, medium and long term? And then what's been delivered and how that's been experienced. If you take that line of inquiry, um, I think it's quite fruitful for understanding like what is what am I trying to get the athletes to and how are they experiencing that? And it allows you to kind of make decisions in the short term, in the session, this isn't working because what I'm delivering isn't isn't having the desired effect. And in the long term, in terms of over six weeks to 12 months to four years, however you want to look at it, what's the outcome I'm trying to get to? And what's your thoughts in how that interacts with competitions at lower levels? So we know we the more you err towards performance, it's about results, okay? And there's no competition starts as young as five you know in judo for you know if you're talking about club competitions and stuff and i think competitions is a really important part of development and learning how does that what you've just said interact with that competition element like do you think that sometimes that the result of the competition is more important and that sort of gets in the way a little bit how can you balance that um, I'm going to throw a question back at you just out, out of curiosity. Mm. Why do you think competitions are important? I'm not, there's no judgment on whether you're right or wrong. It's just a question. Yeah. So the reason why I think competition is really important is because it creates understanding. There's a consequence. So when I teach a, 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 maybe a technique or a strategy or I say, do this or do that, at that point, the person could learn what I've just said but they won't fully understand it until there's a consequence to not doing it. So for example, if you say, right, when you go out to do to your competition, what I want you to do is get two hands on and pull rather than walk forwards. And the first thing they do is run out. They run after their partner, they get thrown for rip on, Well, there's a consequence to their action and not. So that's where they create cements their understanding. It doesn't matter that they've lost. It's just now the fact that it cre- creates some sort of value to what you said and that's why i think competition is so important to learning well, i think you've just answered your own question because that's exactly what it is isn't it it's solidifying the learning or understanding where the learning's happened or whether it's been successful or not it's um it's what you would might call an education it's formative assessment hmm. it's an opportunity to learn where you're at so you can understand where you need to be um, and by doing it in competition there's loads of other things that fall into that isn't it? there's nerves there's um, opponents and lots of different things that um, solidify the learning and if our destination is to try and improve their experiences so they can go on the journey to be an elite judo player if that's what they want to do then competition is a really good learning experience for that isn't it mm. yeah and I think it's not just for it I think competition for children in general is just a good a, a good basis managed right you know I'm not saying you know I don't necessarily like the environments where you see everybody shouting at the kids and you, you can feel that it's unnecessary pressure because they're already nervous and stuff like that. Um, but I think regardless of whether, whether they want to be an elite athlete or not, I think the competition process is still a very, very important one, regardless of whether they want to do judo or anything, because it's, it's part of life, isn't it? Yeah. Well, judo set up in that way that it, it, 
it comes preloaded with a set of values that you can instill through various methods, whether that's in the day-to-day training in the dojo or whether that's through competition, mm. things like modesty, uh, respect, those things you can kind of, um, you can test them and tweak them using competition as that. And they're really good development for the person's development holistically, rather than just their ability to win fights in judo. Right. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, <sighs> I'm conscious of time here, actually, so I don't want to go on forever with you, bud. Um, obviously, we've had a long time off of judo um, with COVID and that, and there's going to be plenty of people that are raring to get back on, do their round during. Uh, do you have any thoughts on possible good practices, just thinking about everything that you know? Is there anything that you think that they could or should be doing in maybe preparation before or once they get on the mat? Um, and I, I'm especially thinking about teenagers kids you know people got who have grown a lot in the last year yeah i mean there's a really difficult question isn't it because mm. um, we don't know what that's why um, i'm asking it what type of level people are going to come back at mm. um, i think if you take it in terms of the the long-term athletic development advice um some of those fundamental movement skills would be really important so any of the kind of lunge squat push pull hinge and then any of the gymnastic movements um break falls massively important in terms of getting them back in before you start getting people to fight. Uh, because it's particularly those that are going through a growth spurt. If number one, they're going through a growth spurt, so therefore the coordination has dropped. And number two, they haven't done judo for over a year with another person. Cause I know you've been doing a lot of online stuff. Um, there's risk in that, isn't there? Mm. So it's mitigating the risk. And by mitigating the risk, there's opportunities to kind of develop some fundamental movement patterns that would serve the athletes for when they return to judo properly. But also, like you say, if they don't want to be a competitive judo player and they might find another sport at a later date, you've still developed those fundamental movement skills, mm. um, strength, capacity, gymnastic ability, coordination. Um, so yeah, it's not, it's a, I'm swerving your, your question because I don't know the answer. Uh, it's difficult, isn't it? No, but I know I'm itching to get back on the map, but there's a big part of me in my head thinking, especially as well, like I've, spoke to Ben Fletcher recently about him breaking his leg and almost that rush to get back to to doing judo the way that we love doing it but yeah I also fully respect how hard it is to do round dory well and it's not just you you're you could be clumsy your athletes your your partner's going to be clumsy possibly that fear of being thrown again (laughs) you know yeah and that's why I think yeah I'm curious to know your thoughts around it that's the example from the performance lab was an interesting one. So think about um, the training camp situation in, in January. Most of the best players in the world traveled down to Austria, to Mittersill, to mm. do an international training camp with the best players in the world after what's usually sort of three, four weeks off. Mm. Speaking to the physio at British Judo, the number of injuries that play out in Mittersill is unbelievable. So jumping straight back in at Randori at a higher level doesn't seem like a smart move. No. There's got to be some kind of phased approach back into it, hasn't there? Well, it's hard as well. So from speaking to Ben, um, it's not just that. It's actually getting to the training. That's the problem with all the testing and stuff. And, you know, so you might be missing out. And there's other countries that that haven't stopped, you know, and they're, they're, their system's so strong that they don't necessarily have to worry about it. So, yeah, it just seemed like athletes are possibly at a disadvantage because they haven't had the level of involvement that they've needed. Yeah. Um, I'd like to think there'd be some guidance come out from sort of, you know, whether it's UK sport EIS or whether it's British judo in terms of what that return to training, some guidance on how club coaches and centers can do that, because that's going to be a challenge for everybody, isn't it? Mm. And we don't want everybody to come back on the mat, do Randori in the first week, and then we lose half the population of judo because they're all injured. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, actually you, you remind me of something I want to speak to you about as well. Um, Functional movement screening. How valuable do you think that is as a tool for uh, for use within sports and especially children growing? Uh, yeah. What, what's your thoughts on that? Um, I flip-flopped throughout my sort of career as a strength condition coach and judo coach as to how much I've used functional movement screening. Oh, um, can you explain what, it? Sorry, before we get into just explain what functional movement screening is for us, Andy. Please. Yeah, it's essentially um, a scoring system, a rating system on a bunch of movements that have been deemed by um, physiotherapists to be key movement patterns that you can look at to assess whether someone's um, got mobility, strength, and coordination in different movement patterns. So it might be like a lunge in a line, 
or it might be an overhead squat. Um, and it's a good assessment of that person's um, functional capacity because not just whether they can touch their toes, it's whether they can do a, get into a position at stretch and hold that position. So it's strength and mobility together. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I flip-flopped on it is because um, at one point when I was in Wales back in the day, mm-hmm. we did every functional movement pattern assessment. And I'd say actually only two of them played out as being sort of relatively valid and reliable um, and um, had a conversation with the lead physio at Arsenal not that long ago. And over the course of the career of all the young players that they had, they did one functional movement. And it was overhead squat with, um, with a broomstick. Yeah. Because if you can get into a full squat with a broomstick above your head, actually above your head, um, and you can maintain that through all your growth spurts and through all the training that you're doing, then you're a relatively good mover and you've got the mobility, flexibility, and strength through that range. Um, so if you can get into that position, you can more likely you'll be able to get into all the other ones as well. We did things like plank positions, um, you know, pull-ups, um, cart. We did all the sort of gymnastic movements and we rated them and scored them. And actually it was time consuming, mm. providing me with lots of rich data to kind of look at where the athletes were physically. But in terms of bang for your buck, we only, only really needed to do the overhead squat, if I'm honest. Yeah, was- so what we done with is you just do that one and you'd look at the movement patterns within a judo setting. Mm. Yeah, I was cur- curious because I've played around with it a little bit and the only one that I go back to is the overhead squat. And for me, I just think if you can't squat, there's very little chance you're going to be able to do judo. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and that's what, you know, especially after summer, I would generally get the kids doing some sort of overhead squat work just as a guy. Obviously, you can't... It's, the actual information it gives you is very little apart from you can see, well, actually they're possibly uncoordinated. They're not flexible enough. They're straight. So should I be hammering them with a load of randori? Possibly not. Possibly we need to go through a bit of nagkomi, bit of movement, bit of drilling, let them ease themselves back into it. Might come back to your conversation about giving leeway to some of those heavyweights. Mm. Cause they might not have the flexibility mobility that some of your lightweights might have. Yeah. And I think, the for me it was always dependent on age especially with some of the younger ones that possibly were were a little bit out of shape they should still be able to get in their their joints should be flat you know uh, supple enough to do that but as they get a bit bigger then yeah but the problem with judo as well is you have to be strong through throughout a range of movement it's no good just being strong in a bench press you know you've got to be so you still you've still got a set of standard of like if they can't get anywhere close, there's going to have to have some sort of work, isn't there? Yeah, agreed, agreed, 100%. Um, but I guess it's one worth sort of highlighting in terms of sort of the growth spurt you'd expect to see for, for girls would be sort of 11 to 13 years old and for boys 12 to 14. Mm. So for, for coaches that are listening and you're in, a, you're in a club setting, if your young players are at that kind of age range, chances are they're going through some growth and development and maturation. So maybe an overhead squat throughout those age ranges might just give you an indication of when they're having their big growth spurts because they lose coordination and flexibility. Mm-hmm. It's an opportunity to look at that. Yeah, and that's it, isn't it? I suppose if you if you could say, right, uh, every club coach there is in the country, there's a, a few things that they could do that would possibly help their players through maturation. What would you highlight as as a couple of key areas? Oh, that's tough. Yeah, I know. That's tough. From a physical point of view, do you mean? Uh, yeah, I suppose so. If you're okay, so let let's nail it down. Of trying to reduce injuries, maybe, and trying to keep involvement within the sport. Yeah, um, keeping them injury free is a really simple one. Um, manage the volume. So if you have a big spike, if you go from not doing anything all summer and you come back um, to school and that's when you do your judo, if you then go to four times a week, um, you increase the risk of injury. So graduated return to training, whether that's from a holiday or whether that's from an injury um, and just gradually playing around with that volume and not having massive peaks and troughs is probably your number one advice in terms of a physical point of view to manage that injury risk. Yeah. What was your other question? (laughs) 
it's good this yeah no the other one is uh what what are things that they could do um to help with engagement like as they're going through that maturation um well first and foremost uh, the thing that drops off when they go through maturation is coordination mm. so if, the, if you can't get them doing randori or you feel that there's it's quite risky to put them through large volumes of randori then i would be looking at what other sports can you get them to play and quite often I would take the players that are going through growth and maturation into, into the sports and we play badminton or we, we play football on the, on the mat or something just to increase coordination um, with a lower level of risk. Mm. Although if you've ever seen judo players play football, um, it's probably the most risky thing you could do. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Oh, brilliant. No, thanks. I think there's lots of things that we potentially could talk about. And I think, you know, I would love to have you back on to talk about other areas um, within this. But um, yeah, I want to thank you for your time today. Anna. It's been really good. I hope you've, um, you've enjoyed it. I've not scared you off. No, I have enjoyed it. And I'd be more than happy to come back again. Um, I hope I lived up to your expectation. You put me under some, under some pressure. No, to be honest, I, I love the subject anyway, but I, I find it difficult to find people to talk to as well. So, you know, it's difficult. Uh, yeah it's difficult in that in that regard but yeah no I've enjoyed it and I'd like to go into I think next time I'd like to go into some more specific areas within um, long-term athlete development and stuff like that but yeah no thanks for your time Andy no problem just give me a shout when you want me to come back on cheers mate bye I want to thank Andy again now i as I said to you guys I was looking forward to this uh, podcast before before we'd done it and I think Andy was excellent he was a definitely a lot more concise than what I was I was rambling at times but I really enjoyed his ability to pass across the information there was quite a lot of heavy stuff in there and it's difficult with the podcast to know how deep to go in with, with certain aspects of, of it but if there was anything that you were listening to think oh, I'd like to know more information about that or anything else you know just send me a message and Andy's already agreed that he said he would come back on if there was anything that we wanted to talk about again um but there was so there's so many things i enjoy the subject and obviously i've done a lot of research myself about it nowhere near as much as andy but it there were so many concepts in there that that would be so useful to so many people and the biggest takeaway i think is keep them in the sport as long as possible and it doesn't matter what involvement you have within judo I think you've got the ability to make the people who attend your club love judo I think as a parent you know you can help your child learn to love the sport as much as we do there's so many things in there that are out of your control and maybe beyond what you could provide but teaching them to love the sport and teaching them the values of the sport and keeping them involved is something that we all can do. And I think if we do that one thing, Judo's got a great chance in this country of pushing on, especially after the tough times that we've had recently. I think, yeah, I think that for me, I think Andy done a great job with, with getting his points across. And that for me is the one that rings home that everybody can do. So I want to thank Andy again. Um, We've got a really big podcast coming up next week as well. Um, next week we're talking, I'm talking to Travis Stevens. Uh, Travis is obviously Olympic silver medalist. Um, he co-owns Judo Fanatics and USAJudo.com. And so we've got a great interview lined up for next week with that. Uh, I want to thank you guys again for listening. Uh, if there's anything... I'm still looking at other areas to talk about in judo at the moment and setting up some interviews so it's not all just elite. Um, but yeah, I, thanks for everybody that keeps reaching out. Um, thanks again to Joe last week. She she done a great job with the interview. And if you if you want to contact me, just vince at vinceskillcon.co.uk. Um, if you want exclusive... So guys, I run an email list as well. So every week I'll send out... Um, judo emails just uh, whether it's uh clips that i've created on youtube tutorials blog posts um anything like that i've got an email list if you just go to vinceskillcorn.co.uk you can join the email list there and there's loads of stuff that i put on um which is sort of 
yeah, it's not not the same as just the podcast stuff. There, there's different information that goes out. So if you're interested in that, you can jump on there. Um, and don't forget, you can follow me on social media, send out messages. I do reply uh, to everybody. So uh, if you want to do that as well. But until next week, where we're, where we're going to talk to Travis, I'll, I hope you have a good week and I'll speak to you all soon. Judo talk, talk, judo talk.